Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you as always for listening to The Next Track. This is episode number 21, brought to you by Drobo, a family of simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. For more information, visit drobo.com. Before we introduce our guest and topic, I want to issue a small warning. We will be playing a few test tones during the show to illustrate various low-frequency ranges that we'll be discussing. These tones may cause smaller speakers to vibrate a bit more than is desirable, but it's nothing to worry about. On the other hand, on some smaller speakers and earphones, uh, the tones may not even be audible. With that said, we're happy to welcome back our friend Andy Doe, who is a digital music consultant and record label consultant and an audio guy. Andy, it's always fun to have you with us. Hi, it's great to be here. Hi, Andy. It's nice to have you back. Um, is this the third time you're on the show already? I don't know. I'm, I'm not keeping score. Do you have notches in your microphone stand? Um, I do, <laughs> but they're not related to any guests yet. <laughs> <laughs> the title of this episode is Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Subwoofers. So a little more than a week ago, Doug and I were talking about the speakers that we have in our office. So each of us has our computers connected to a sound system. And Doug has a system with two small speakers and a subwoofer. And I run my iMac through a stereo amplifier into bookshelf speakers. And the question arose, do I need a subwoofer? So we had a little chat about that. And it started getting a bit complicated trying to understand whether I needed one or not. And that's when I called Andy and we spent an hour talking over Skype and Andy explained this to me. And I wish I'd recorded that actually, because it was quite illuminating. It covered all the bases, but we're going to try and do the same thing here in less than a half an hour. So Andy, what is a subwoofer? A subwoofer is a really big speaker for making low notes. That sizes it up for me. That's Okay. Well, thanks for listening to the show and we'll see you next week. Okay. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Okay. So the larger the driver in a speaker, the better it is at producing low notes. And typically, a stereo loudspeaker is is made to represent most of the sounds you can hear. And one of the things that gets missed off in the the raft of compromises that have to be made to fit your loudspeaker on, on a bookshelf is the very, very lowest notes. And so a subwoofer is designed to to fill in that gap and give some weight, some heft, some punch to the bass in the sound coming out of your your stereo. Okay, a speaker can have one driver or two or 20. Most speakers that most people have have two. They have a woofer and a tweeter. Tweeter's the high end, the woofer's the low end. The woofer goes down to a certain frequency. And I'm going to use my speakers as an example. They are um, Focal Chorus 705V. They're technically bookshelf speakers, but they're a bit tall for bookshelf speakers. And the specs of these speakers say that they go down to 65 hertz. They say 65 to 28,000 hertz. Exactly what does that mean? Does it just stop at 65 hertz? Well, so generally what happens with a loudspeaker is that it will have a, a flat frequency response. That is to say that, that each frequency will be at about the same volume up to and down to a certain a certain frequency. And in the case of your speakers, the frequency response will rapidly roll off below 65 hertz. So a 50 hertz sound will be considerably quieter than a 65 hertz sound. Right. So, so my speakers go from the 28,000 hertz um, magical bat ear range down to the 65 hertz 
low-ish range, and, and it's actually, I looked around, it's actually pretty low for this type of speaker to get down to 65 hertz. Yeah, and as far as your cat is concerned, that represents every audible sound. That's that's wonderful. Your cat thinks that you have great speakers. But for you, because you have slightly larger ears, there will be some sounds, such low sounds, that they're almost barely perceptible as sounds, but they're still perceptible, those rumbling noises will be will be missed off. And don't they also interact with other frequencies to create harmonic f distortion and frequencies that you might hear? Yes and no. The biggest interaction that you're likely to get from very low bass tones is standing waves in the room where some of these very low notes coincide with the width or length of your or height of your office. And then the whole room becomes like an organ pipe and those notes jump out of the mix. And if you don't have speakers capable of reproducing these very low sounds, then you're far less likely to run into those problems. So just, just as an example, here's what a 65 hertz sound sounds like. So that's pretty low, but a subwoofer goes much lower. So Doug, we started talking about your subwoofer last week. How low does it go? What's the lowest frequency? I'm using a Polk Audio powered subwoofer and it goes from 35 hertz to 200 hertz. Okay, and I bought a Wharfdale SW150 that goes down to 35 hertz. Andy, you've got some pretty special speakers there. So I have a pair of studio monitors, Mackie HR824 Mark IIs, and supposedly these have a frequency response from 22 kilohertz at the top end down to 35 hertz at the bottom end. So uh, if I were to have a subwoofer, it would be for a tiny, tiny range below that. Well, given that you, you would have to get a, a subwoofer that goes even further than the ones we have because ours stop at 35. So you, you've got, and, and I will point out that these Mackie speakers are quite expensive. They are What's the word, self-amplified? Yeah, they, they call them active monitors. So they have their own amplifiers in them. Active monitors. So you have to factor into that price the fact that I don't need to buy a separate amplifier because that's included. Right. So you've got basically in speakers that I think are smaller than mine, you've got a frequency response that goes down as low as the subwoofer that I bought, which is about the size of a, I don't know, a small ottoman. It's a cube about a foot and a half. Right. How big is the actual loudspeaker in that? So mine has a 250 millimeter driver. Your Mackies, how big are they? Uh, that's an eight and three quarter inch driver. So the, the base driver in my stereo pair is almost the same size as the speaker in your subwoofer. And that's why they're able to, to produce such low sounds. Okay, so we've, we've seen that in, in my case, I've got speakers that go down to 65 hertz and the subwoofer takes it down to 35 hertz. Here's what a 35 hertz tone sounds like. That's pretty low. Do we need subwoofers? Is it useful to have a subwoofer? Did, did I just spend money on something that I don't need? Has Doug been sitting there listening to his Frank Zappa music all this time with a speaker that's just for, what, what would be the low end equivalent of magical bat ears? <laughs> I guess it must be elephant ears, right? <laughs> um, or actually it's, it's whales. I think it's whales that have the sensitivity to the lowest sounds in their hearing. But really, you, you should be able to tell us, right? You, you bought this thing. You can turn it on. You can turn it off. Uh, how does it sound different to you? I was actually going to save that to the very end of the show to come to my conclusion. Okay. Let, let's rephrase that. 
Is a subwoofer useful? Who needs a subwoofer? The, the promise of a subwoofer is that it will increase the heft of the low notes as you hear them. It will improve the overall sound of the bass tones in the music you listen to. Even, even if those notes don't contain sine waves at frequencies that you're not really able to hear, the, the punch at the beginning of those sounds, what's called transient artifacts, should sound better. Let me explain why I'm using a subwoofer and why I need one in this particular setup. As Kirk said, I have two little three-inch pile home cube speakers. They're quite good from the lower mid-range up, but they only go down to 90 hertz. And for reference, here's what 90 hertz sounds like. Now, the low E string on a guitar is lower than that at about 82 hertz. So these speakers can't quite accommodate guitar, let alone bass guitar or barry sax or tuba or even the lower octaves on a piano. And I like to hear those things. So I needed to augment those speakers. But my receiver doesn't have a discrete subwoofer output. So I bought this Poke Audio subwoofer and it works like this. The two left and right speaker leads from the receiver's speaker terminals go directly to the subwoofer. Then a second set of speaker terminals on the subwoofer are connected to the desktop speakers so that the subwoofer manages what goes where. It's got a crossover control that acts as a cutoff so that the subwoofer handles everything from about 35 hertz to 100 hertz or so. And the desktop speakers handle from their floor of 90 hertz up. Right, and that, that system using the subwoofer as the crossover is is a great system because it means that you're not going to have the situation where some of the sounds are coming out of both the subwoofer and your desktop speakers, and nor are you going to have the situation where there's a gap where some sounds are not being represented by either. So the, the only thing you have to do, Doug, is make sure that you've set the volume on your subwoofer and your speakers so that somebody plays a descending scale, it doesn't suddenly get louder or quieter as it crosses the gap. Exactly. And it works out very nicely. The advantage of my system is that I don't have to be any good at setting it up at all because the amplifier and the speakers are all part of one unit. And I don't trust myself to get this right. And I don't have to get it right. Let's take a short break here and we'll be back with our guest Andy Doe and talk more about subwoofering in just a minute. If you're a fan of this podcast, I'm guessing you have a large digital media collection. Is it backed up? That's good. Is it stored on a Drobo? That's very good. Because Drobo is the simple, safe, and smart way to protect your valuable digital media collection from hard drive failures. The Drobo 5C is the world's first self-managing USB-C storage solution. And that means you don't have to worry about complicated setups or calamities like hard drives getting full or failing or even power outages corrupting your digital media. The core of every Drobo is its patented Beyond RAID technology. Beyond RAID provides all the data protection of traditional RAID and eliminates traditional RAID's limitations, like increasing storage capacity, using mixed size hard drives, and complex setup procedures. The Drobo 5C can grow up to 64 terabytes in size and works with Macs and PCs. You can create a dedicated volume for Apple's Time Machine or for bootable backups. If you haven't looked at a Drobo solution for your storage needs, do it today. Learn about the Drobo 5C and the entire Drobo product family at Drobo.com today. So there are two ways that a subwoofer can work. You need to have a crossover at some point, and it could be on the subwoofer, as in Doug's system, or on mine uh, as well, or it could be in an AV amplifier where it's set up with a special subwoofer output rather than the standard speaker output. And we'll get to that in a second, how you actually do the wiring. I have mine set to 65 hertz, which means that above 65 hertz, the sound 
decreases in volume a lot. So at 66 or 67 hertz, it's softer than 65. And at 70, it's nearly inaudible, etc. It's not it's not like, a, what would you call it a low pass filter in recording, which is something that actually cuts the frequencies clearer. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So the next question is, how do you set up a subwoofer? And we've looked at a couple of different situations. I think Doug's is really interesting, the fact that his speaker inputs go into the subwoofer and the subwoofer serves as a sort of a pass-through to his higher frequency speakers and the subwoofer itself. In my case, I wanted to plug this into a normal stereo amplifier, not an AV amplifier. Now, if you put a subwoofer to an AV amplifier, you generally have a single RCA cable that goes from a single plug on the back of the amplifier into the subwoofer. In my case, I had to run two pairs of speaker cables, two cables for the left channel, two for the right channel, it turns out that my amplifier has two zones, A and B, and I have push buttons in the front of the amp so I can turn A and B on. So A is my normal speakers, my stereo speakers, and B is the subwoofer. If you don't have that, it gets a lot more complicated. And the manual for my subwoofer showed that you could do a sort of a bi-wiring where you connect the cables that go into the subwoofer on the same terminals as your other stereo speakers. And it also showed that you could connect the speakers with the subwoofer to the back of your speakers, not to the amplifiers. And I, now, I tried that first because just because of the position that the cabling would have been simpler, I got no sound out of the subwoofer. And it kind of didn't make sense to me that it would be able to draw sound like that. Should that have worked, Andy? Well, if, if you think about it, the speaker cables from your amplifier to your speakers ought to be sonically, electrically transparent. So it shouldn't matter which end of that cable you connect your subwoofer to, but it's possible that uh, one of the connections wasn't good. It's possible that uh, the polarity was switched on one of them. And so the left and right channels could have been canceling each other out or that this could have been causing some sort of short and that could prevent it from working if, you, if you're wiring your sub up to the speaker's end of the speaker cables. But it shouldn't matter which end of the cables you connect it to. The thing that I'd be concerned about when you connect two speakers to the same terminals in parallel like that at one end or the other, um, that you'd be creating some kind of ohms resistance issue? That's right. And that was my first concern when uh, Kirk described this method of connecting it up. But uh, it is designed to be done this way. And the way that it works is that the, the impedance of the subwoofer is very, very high. So almost no electricity is leaking through the subwoofer and round the the main speakers and it's able to do that because the input to the subwoofer is effectively it has a big resistor and it reduces the current going through back down to a level that is suitable to go into its amplifier so it can amplify it again and its volume control and crossover will still work so it's not presenting the the same uh, impedance issue that you would have if you just connected a really large speaker up in parallel with your with your bookshelf speakers. That that would not work, and it could cause damage to your amplifier. I don't know. Maybe there was something in the subwoofer that wasn't happy. In any case, I got it to work, and I got it to work quite well with the AB. And having these two zones and the two push buttons means that I can listen to the A, so my stereo speakers, and switch the B on and off. And this was extremely useful in setting up the subwoofer. We're going to put a link in the show notes to an online tone generator. So what I basically did is I played a bunch of tones going through the, the stereo speakers and then going through the subwoofer, one and then the other and then both at the same time, and adjusted the volume on the subwoofer 
so that they would match. Now, the subwoofer, as Andy mentioned earlier, it has an amplifier in it. And that amplifier is acting on the volume that's sent out from your stereo amplifier. So you can make it louder or softer. And it's very important to make sure that as you've got a descending scale, as Andy mentioned earlier, or any sort of a tone, that if the subwoofer is too soft or too loud, you'll hear it incorrectly or you won't hear it at all. That's right. What, what you want is uh, if you are slowly turning down your tone generator, you want a completely smooth transition from the speakers to the subwoofer. Now, in, in listening to ordinary music, you're, you're never going to experience that transition because you're not going to be listening to pure sine waves as they slide across the threshold from your stereo pair to your subwoofer. But what that tone generator will do is, is it'll rather brutally expose any flaws in that setup. And once you've got it right, my suggestion is you listen to some music and if you don't like the way it sounds, you turn it up or down. Because you're, you're listening to this at home for your own pleasure. It doesn't actually matter if it's accurate. What matters is that you like it. Exactly. But it would be jarring if I was listening to, say, I don't know, a descending run on a string section with a lot of double basses in a Mahler symphony or something, and then all of a sudden it sounds softer or louder at a certain point. But as you said, you're not listening to, to individual tones. And what we did last week is you went to your piano and you played an A four octaves below middle C, right? So the A just above middle C is a 440 hertz. If you go four octaves down, each octave is half of the frequency. So 440, 220, 110, 55. And when you get down there, sorry, and then 27, that's four octaves down. You can hear the tone. 27 hertz is lower than our speakers can reproduce, but yet you can hear the tone. It's not that you're hearing the 27 hertz necessarily. And Andy, you were doing this over Skype. And so the quality, you know, over Skype, we don't have that frequency response. But what you're hearing is the harmonics. It's the, the, the tones an octave higher, a fifth higher, two octaves, four octaves, etc. You're hearing the mass of sounds that reverberate in the piano. I was listening to a recording of Bach's solo cello suites the other day, and while you hear that low open note on the cello, you also hear the resonance of the wood and the other notes and the harmonics all the way up. So you never actually hear that single tone. What you hear is that tone is a sort of foundation for the other tones. That's right. And if it weren't for those overtones, then even a piano the, the size of my piano wouldn't, wouldn't really work to produce the, the fundamental tones, right? So th there's there's no chance that you would be able to make sense of Beethoven piano music listening on earbuds or th through the speakers in your laptop. And yet it works and you can hear it, you can make sense of it because the overtones, the harmonics make, make sense of the music. So what the subwoofers go to add is you'll get the lower components of each note. When you're listening to classical music, that, that's what you'll get. You'll get a greater fullness in the bass. When you're listening to some some forms of electronic music where artificially or synthesized sounds are used, you get much purer tones, some of which don't have any overtones. And then you'll hear whole notes which were just not there when you listen to it on tiny speakers. So back to the question I said, do you need a subwoofer? And there's actually one area where people tend to have subwoofers, and that's in a home theater system. The reason for that is movies with things that go boom and explode very loud, you 
don't necessarily, again, you don't necessarily hear these tones, but as you said earlier, you feel them. These are the tones that go through your, your, your bones. They go through the, the, the legs on the chair you're sitting on and they go into your body and you feel them. And, and when you're watching a movie and, you know, an asteroid blows up or something, you do feel it and it can be very loud. That's right. And when a film soundtrack's recorded, they actually use a, a completely separate channel for those very low sounds. It's called the, the LFE channel, low frequency effects channel. And you you don't want that coming out of the speakers along with the soundtrack and the dialogue because it'll make a mess of it. You'd have to buy new speakers every time you watch a movie. That's right. Whereas when you <laughs> when you mix an album for for surround, you mix a classical album for surround, you assume that the full range of audible sounds are going to come out of every speaker and you mix some of it to the front and you mix some of it to the back depending on where in the room it was recorded. If the consumer's stereo system or surround system then sends a bunch of those lower sounds to a single subwoofer, that's fine. But the assumption will be when you're mixing a surround album that there's a full frequency speaker on every channel. Uh, whereas with a movie, you're less likely to do that because you have these these stunt effects. Right. And so I, I think you once told me that when you've done surround sound, you generally do 5.0 mixes rather than 5.1. The point one is the subwoofer, right? Right. So the the benefit of this is that you can fit more music on a super audio CD. Um, Super Audio CD is a format that uses lossless compression. And so you don't know how much music can fit on the disc until you do the, the final render of the sound. And then if it doesn't fit, there are really only two things you can do. You can turn it down a bit because the quieter it is, the less detail there is. And, the less data is used. Yeah, and the less data is yeah. used, so, so, so the, the more music you can fit on the disc. The other thing you can do is you can remove one of the channels entirely. And unless it's a Mahler symphony and you've close-miked the hammer, then there's, there's not a lot of call for a separately isolated low-frequency effects channel. And and you can count on the, the audiophile classical fan to, to have full range speakers on every channel or to have a subwoofer rigged up in such a way that that it's going to capture those sounds um, and and safely transmit them to the room. So one thing to point out, and, and maybe not everyone understands this, a subwoofer is a mono speaker. It's a single speaker. We were talking about multi-channel sound 5.1. It's only one. Why is a subwoofer just, why do you only need just one subwoofer? Well, the way that your ears work out where a sound is coming from is based on how out of phase the sound waves are as they arrive at your left and right ear. And the higher the frequency is, the shorter the waves are and the more the easier it is to spot when they're in or out of phase with each other because a, a high frequency sound might get all of the way out of phase on its way from your left ear around your head to your right ear. Whereas the very low frequencies that a subwoofer produces have such long wavelengths that essentially your left and right ear are hearing the wave at exactly the same point at the same time. And that means that you can't tell where this noise is coming from. That's one of the reasons that uh, a lot of mixes put lots of music, lots of sounds in the middle because you can't tell the difference. It wouldn't make any difference where they come from. That's right. And it's also worth considering that when you're mastering something for vinyl, 
it's really important that the lower notes are in phase with each other because if they're out of phase with each other it can cause the needle to jump out of the groove and this means that all of your classic analog masters are not going to suffer from having a mono bass because the bass on this record is in mono anyway there's a type of mp3 encoding called joint stereo and what that does is at the lower frequencies it basically encodes it in mono for that same reason essentially the the waves at these low frequencies are so long as you said you can't tell where they're coming from and this also has an effect on where you position a subwoofer so that was going to be my fourth and last question in in this discussion here is how do you position it a lot of people say, you know, you just put it anywhere because the waves are so long, yet there are some limitations as to where you put it, aren't there? Well, it's it's a big thing. So that's one limitation. You have to live with this in your house. You don't necessarily want it right behind your head because that could be quite uncomfortable. Ideally, it would be a kind of similar distance from you as all of the other speakers, because even if the waves are reaching you in phase with each other, you still want the, the punchy percussive sounds to all arrive at the same time. So maybe stick it in the middle or over to one side near one of your main stereo speakers. Uh, you also don't want it pointing directly at a very reflective object. So some people have these things pointed at the ceiling and the sound certainly will fill the room, but you'll also have the sound head up to the ceiling and slap straight back down again at the floor. Uh, it's much better to either point it at something that is fairly messily shaped or to point it, point it across the room. Mine has the speaker pointing down at the floor. Okay, so if the speaker's pointing down at the floor, what's going to happen uh, to the sound is roughly the same thing that would happen if you dumped a bucket of water out the bottom of this speaker. The sound is going to go everywhere and it's going to fill the room quite nicely so pointing downwards is, is not a it's not a bad idea one of the things that i've always heard about placing a subwoofer is put it wherever you want for the time being and then listen to something and then walk around the room and wherever it sounds the best that's where you should place the subwoofer. I think the positioning of the subwoofer does depend partly on the design of the subwoofer it depends heavily on the shape of your room and Really, the, the best thing to do is to put it somewhere where you can live with it being and see if you have any problems with it. And if you, if you have problems with standing waves, with, with some notes being louder than others, then you can either address that with acoustic treatment or by trying to move the subwoofer. If you don't have any problems with it, then leave it where you would ideally have it. Ultimately, what really matters is, is your experience at home. And Kirk, you've been living with outer subwoofer for a long time you've had one for a week or two what really matters is what it sounds like what's your verdict i hate to say my verdict is i don't know depending on what i'm listening to i do get a feeling of more of a a fuller sound that there's more of a foundation to the sound it's not something that i can hear as much as i can feel but it could also just be a placebo effect of me pushing that button and my brain saying, ooh, it's better because you've just pushed this button. I have listened to a variety of music from Grateful Dead to solo box solo cello suites to orchestral music to acoustic blues. I can't say that it sounds that different, but I can't say that it's not making a difference either. So I think it's going to take a bit longer and that I need to listen to this for a while and then after I've really gotten used to it turn it off for a while and see what happens 
and to see if I notice it over time. I, I think it's too difficult to just do a quick A-B test with something like this and expect to hear a difference, especially when, you know, I know when I push that button, whether it's on or off. Right. Well, as for me, I need to hear it because it's it's filling in a, a spectrum of sound that the, the other speakers clearly don't provide. So for me, using the crossover is is the way I hear music correctly on this small system that I have here. Right. It all depends on the other speakers that you have. For me, a lot of the time I'm using my speakers to evaluate a commercial recording. And, and what really matters to me is that if there is a problem, like if there's some very, very low rumbling sound there, if there was a truck driving past when we recorded it, I need to know that that's there. And so the success of the low frequency range of, of my system is in the things I don't hear and therefore know aren't there. I hope this has been enlightening. When I started on this quest, I th was expecting to have more of a concrete answer to Andy's question. Is it better? Is it not better? I don't. And I think this is actually the type of reaction one can have with all sorts of hi-fi equipment. If you just assume that the cables that you spent $500 on are worth $500, they will sound better to you. But if you actually pay attention to what you're hearing, they might not sound better. I don't regret that I spent 150 pounds on a subwoofer. I say it's fairly expensive because my amplifier was only about 200 and my speakers were only about 200. But I'm not convinced that it's an essential purchase for listening to music. For, for movies, obviously, it's another story because there you have sound effects. But for just standard music, I'm not overwhelmingly convinced. So if you're on the fence about buying a subwoofer, spending 150 pounds, $200, I'd say spend $200 more on better speakers and maybe get speakers that go down lower so you don't need the subwoofer rather than spend 150 pounds or 200 dollars on a subwoofer i think if you're not sure what you should do is spend 150 or 200 pounds on music and then you'll have more stuff to listen to that's a great conclusion thank you andy thanks for joining us andy we really appreciate it thank you it's a pleasure It's time now to tell you about our next tracks. That's the music that we'll be listening to as soon as we wrap up here, ostensibly. We'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Drobo, a family of simple-to-use storage arrays designed to keep your data safe forever. For more information, visit drobo.com. My next track is an album that sounds really good on my tri-speaker setup that I described earlier. It's the Ray Charles Count Basie Orchestra album, Ray Sings, Basie Swings. Now, this is an album produced in 2006 after Ray Charles died, and it's actually a manufactured performance created by taking unreleased Ray Charles vocal tracks from the 70s and overdubbing arrangements by the contemporary Count Basie Orchestra. Some people may not care for this sort of music production. For instance, you might remember when Natalie Cole's so-called duet with her father, Nat King Cole, on Unforgettable a number of years ago raised some hackles. Well, some purists may take issue with the semantics of the album's title because Count Basie himself is not on the album. But you know what? This album just sounds great. Some of the songs are new vocal versions of hits like I'm Busted, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, Georgia, I Can't Stop Loving You, and new versions of The Long and Winding Road, Look What They've Done to My Song. And the arrangements are just top-notch. This is the sort of big band sound that can give me goosebumps. And I really like this album. It's fun, and Ray's vocals are just awesome. Ray Sings, Basie Swings is my next track. Kirk, what's your next track? Well, my next track this week is something that I mentioned earlier that I used to test this subwoofer. 
It's a recording of Bach's Suites for Solo Cello, recorded by Anna Bilesma in 1979 on a Baroque cello. It was the first recording of these works on a Baroque cello. Of all the recordings of Bach's cello suites, and, and if you're familiar with this music, as probably any classical music fan listening to the show is, this is some of Bach's most sublime music. It's a single cello playing this extraordinary counterpoint. I've always liked this recording because it is rough and gutsy and and the gut strings sound wonderful and rich and deep and the way this guy plays them you know a couple weeks ago we had Alex Ross and we were talking about historically informed performance and that's how Anna Bilesma plays this it's a wonderful recording it's not overloaded with production it's a natural recording you can hear him in a studio with a microphone playing this this music and you know you can just feel that there weren't too many takes of it now, he, he recorded these works a second time in 1992 on a Stradivarius cello. And the sound of the instrument is wonderful, but it's just there's just so much reverb and production and it sounds too perfect and it doesn't have that it doesn't have that natural organic feel. I'm gonna put a link in the show notes to an article I posted on my blog last week when I was listening to them. I link to the two different sets, the original Baroque cello set and then the Stradivarius set. And then I also link to a box set, which contains 11 CDs of Anna Balsma's work, including both of these cello suite recordings. So I would recommend any listener who likes these cello suites to buy this box set. It's just wonderful. Listen to the two different versions and all the other recordings that are in this set. So this is box suites for solo cello recorded by Anna Balsma. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.